You are listening to the Religica Theo Lab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. This is Michael Reed Trice at the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. Today, through our Religica Theolab podcast, where we explore the narratives and are listening to various leaders from religious traditions, we're speaking with Presiding Bishop Elizabeth Eaton, who has been the Presiding Bishop of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America for the last few years, now in her second term. Our conversation today, friends, is about how we understand grace or empathy or generosity, both to the divine, toward God or transcendence, but also in our own lives, in our communities, with neighbors and friends and strangers. And we're talking about what emerges here is the pandemic age. What are we experiencing together today between hurricanes and war and stories of eviction and racial inequality and more? We see a kind of disruption that's all taking place at one time in the midst of a viral pandemic. And we have statistics that tell us about empathy fatigue, for instance. We're going to talk about that today. What happens when I experience less care, less empathy in the face of all of these different conflicts that are impacting my life, your life, and the lives of others around us? And we'll talk as well about the pandemic. And I know you've been listening to this and talking about it, and so have I, but the reality when we talk with ecumenical and interreligious partners and other partners, both internal and external to our specific work, we know that a virus carries very little for whether we want to be vaccinated or not. And today we have 290,000 cases of those who have tested positive for COVID, where we know that 90% of that COVID today is of COVID. In the midst of this conversation, we're also going to talk about what is ailing society in the United States, including the highest level in the last 12 years of the increase of hate crimes, an increase of assaults, for instance, against African-Americans and Asian-Americans, as the FBI recently reported and as was described in the Washington Post in a recent article. It's stunning to think, isn't it, that fear and anger and a feeling of isolation can bring about even a new glossary of hate crimes. And in fact, the American Jewish Committee has identified a number of new terms, tropes, if you will, that are focused on anti-Semitic or anti-Judaic prejudice leveled against those in our own communities. We have this time with Bishop Eaton because we want to be able to explore how we understand the experiences we're having today. We're listening in this listening year of the center to what she has to say to us about ecumenical and interreligious responses to what we're beginning to term a pandemic age. And I invite you to take a listen. So the LCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, as I understand, has nearly 3.3 million members, more than 8,900 worshiping communities across the 50 states and also in the Caribbean region. And today I'm just And one congregation in Canada. And one congregation in Canada. When did that take place? It's the Slovak Zion Synod, so I don't know. They're there. That's right. That's right. And we're delighted that you're with us. Thanks so much for taking the time to be in conversation, you know, with us. And one of the reasons we wanted to talk with you is because the center is spending this year as a listening year. And what came to mind for me, uh, even though it was published 
I think it was 1772 by an Anglican clergyman. But amazing grace, how sweet the sound, says something to us about the nature of listening. Like grace speaks. Mm -hmm. One of the uh, aspects of the Lutheran Christian sensibility that I find so rewarding and personally fulfilling is the idea that grace is active. Could we start there? How is grace speaking today? Sometimes that's really hard to see. <laughs> yeah. With what's what's going on. But no, there are moments of grace. So in my neighborhood, my husband and I live in Skokie, and we've all been sort of looking out for each other during the pandemic. So to our immediate west, we have really elderly Taiwanese evangelicals. And then to our east and next door are um, Ukrainian and Russian Orthodox, especially with the, 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 the Lees, since they're elderly, we keep an eye on them and they on us. And then I remember one time, it was during Ramadan, and I was doing a lot of work, yard work, which I really enjoy. It was getting on toward uh, supper time. And uh, a Muslim neighbor from down the street had seen me working. And so she brought a complete home-cooked meal for me saying I, she thought I'd be too tired to cook. And since it's Ramadan, they do acts of mercy and charity. And so it was just this beautiful. So then we put a Ramadan Mubarak sign in our front yard. And so just these little things that we do, there, there's some grace in that. Also, I can't find the name of it, who we're working with, whom we're working, but we have formed a multi-interreligious coalition to get people vaccinated. Because we know that in many cases, folks will trust their place of worship more than they will the government or you know, civil authority. So we've been doing a lot of work together on that to, to try to see how we can support each other. So there, there's some grace in that, I think. Another a grace in action, maybe this is more, I don't know, nebulous, but maybe now it's just I'm just tired of it. But the pandemic forced us to slow down and to maybe be more attentive and not just to each other, but also to listen for God. And even though it seemed like a graceless thing that we couldn't have Holy Communion for so long, but I think it was the absence of that that made Christ's presence even more precious and valuable. So all those ways, you know, in neighborhoods, uh, working together across religious traditions to try to get people vaccinated where they feel safe to that. And, um, you know, spiritually, there's been a little slowing down too. I really appreciate the way you're saying this, because sometimes I think in religious communities, we use big concepts, almost like a blanket, you know, and sometimes they're hard to reach because they sound so theoretical, but I can look out my front window. I can see my neighbor across the street. I can look down and see a neighbor across on the other side of the, of the street. And that's grace. My relationship with them, I hear you saying, my connection mm -hmm. to them, show mm -hmm. signs of empathy or generosity. You, know, you mentioned the pandemic and I want to ask you about that as well. There's this surge or already maybe a fourth wave of the pandemic at the time of this recording. This morning, we know that the daily rates are up at 280,000 new infections in the United States as of yesterday. With a weekly I think 1,000 deaths a day. We're back up to that. We are. We're back up. And that hasn't been, you know, this time last year, we only were at, say, 45,000. So this has grown exponentially. And, and religions have something to say about loving one's neighbor, loving one with a, a weakened immune system or with comorbidities that lessen our immune response and our colleagues, friends, strangers, neighbors, as you're identifying. Mm -hmm. Is the pandemic teaching us something about our values or what we need to be doing in this time? For instance, you know, what are ecumenical partners or colleagues or co-religionists doing together in the country that you think we need to be listening to today? Well, my colleague and counterpart in the Episcopal Church, Michael Bishop Michael Curry, 
we often, or from time to time, I should say, do joint messages. And we did one recently on us getting videoed, uh, getting the jab and telling people to do that and urging them to do that. But yeah, there's a strange, I mean, there's, there are a lot of reasons why people are not getting vaccinated. One is, and I've got a calendar on my wall with an image of men who were in the Tus- Tuskegee experiment. So it's like African-American Black people in this country don't have such a great relationship with medicine or it's hard to access. And mm-hmm. though we're seeing now, this is really an aside, but in Native American communities now, they have a higher vaccination rate than another in some white communities because we finally uh, looked at that. That's one thing that we looked at how, you know, once we, at first we, I would say, okay, the, the virus doesn't have any favorites or it doesn't pass anybody over, but it turns out it, it you know, it did. It, it, and communities of color suffered inordinately. However, back to the, what we're saying, there's that. If you're undocumented, there's a fear that you might be picked up by ICE and sent back to your country of origin. That's a, that's, that's a thing. Some people, but what I find the most confounding Particularly, I think in talking to my counterparts uh, in other religious traditions, we all talk about and believe and hold as a principle that the caring for one's neighbor is a primary thing that we're, we're supposed to do. And so when these people say, you know, I don't step on my freedom, mm-hmm. but I got vaccinated, sure. I, I don't want to get COVID. And now you've described it, it sounds horrible. Mm-hmm. But I also got vaccinated for my community and for my family. So I, I'm mystified when people don't seem to make the connection. And this is something that I think is of concern, particularly in U.S. culture, sort of radical individualism that's almost to the point of idolatry. And that's also not part of our Christian tradition or many other religious traditions. You don't come into this world by yourself and you don't live by yourself. So people say, if I die, I die. But then what about your surviving family? What about the medical professionals who are just pushed to the edge and, and they have to be there holding up a phone or a tablet so you can say goodbyes or gasping for breath to your relatives who can't be there. What about little children like my grandson who are too young to get vaccinated? That's concerning to me that a primary tenant of certainly of, of Christian tradition, but also of other religious traditions is to care for one's neighbor, particularly those who are the most vulnerable. And I'm just seeing that break down with this false claim that we're autonomous. We're not. Some of that, I think it's right in the stream of what we're talking about, Bishop Eaton. I mean, some of that is coming from a quarter of white Christian nationalism in this country, what might be identified as Christian fundamentalism. But of course, there's nothing fundamental about it. And for what I'm no. hearing you say, it, it's mm-hmm. actually contrary in that perspective. And it seems to be, I hear you saying, freedom that just is unhinged from any kind of connection to community. Mm -hmm. What do we do in response to that? Do we, as Christians and co-religionists, need to have a public response to that? Or is is it more aligned to what you said before? Do what we do, do well, be in conversation with our neighbors, our colleagues, our friends, and others in our community, and help boost vaccination rates Do it that way. Well, certainly boost vaccination rates. And in cases where people don't trust the medical system or can't get access to it, there's something that we can do about that. But we can't force people to be in community, even though everyone is. I mean, there might be some people who live by themselves off in the wilderness. There's very few of us. Otherwise, we're all in families or communities large and and small, and we're all connected, I think, when enslaved to these devices sometimes. Yes. 
So, holding up your cell phone. Yeah. yeah. So we're all, you know, we are connected and there is a community, but somehow there's its denial. And it is, it's strong amongst Christian nationalists, which I think is absolutely antithetical to the gospel, the ideology of Christian nationalists, but folks too. And then my dad would always tell me, you know, my right stops just as far as the next person's nose. So you can't just... <laughs> So I, I don't understand how I, I just I don't understand it, and that how folks would even now when folks are now the unvaccinated are dying in droves, that they still want to hold on to this ideology. Let me ask another kind of question that's related to the pandemic. Just noting that in value of the time that you're sharing with us today, psychologist Stephen Taylor discusses recently in the Atlantic a kind of short circuiting of empathy in the face of what we might call a pandemic age, a number of disasters, hurricanes, war, fires, pandemic itself, loss of life, loss of a relationship, perhaps, loss of a job in this time. And he studies disaster psychology. And what he's suggesting, perhaps, is that we are in the face of the possibility of losing empathy. Empathy can be taxed to a certain degree. How did Lutherans talk about empathy or generosity and and maybe a follow-up to that is how do you and your ecumenical colleagues or those closest to you in leadership, how are you talking about robust empathy or generosity or love that's going to get us through a time of catastrophes today? I don't think we've talked about anything that deep. We're just trying to make it through and shepherd our denominations through this. Well, I don't you know. trust me to ask these kinds, these kinds of like overwhelming deep questions. And, but it's really out of respect because I think your responses are always so true and right on for how we engage in community. And yet we know that we're going to be at this for a while, aren't we? Yeah. And just, you know, think about the folks in Haiti. Yeah. Their president is assassinated. They get hit by an earthquake and then the hurricane comes. Yeah. I don't know why it doesn't happen on the other half of the island, the Dominican Republic. If Haiti's on a several kinds of different fault lines that they get hit like this. But yeah, I'm sure that there is empathy fatigue. It is. It's hard. And, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, it was like a snow day and it's exciting and we're going to yeah. all pull together. And now it's like someone described it. No, we're in the middle of an ice age. This is going to be long and slow. But I think one of the, the beautiful things about living in community, either families or neighborhoods or those kinds of communities or a religious community, maybe we don't all get tired out at the same time. You know, I depend on other people to carry me through in prayer or doing works of justice and mercy when I'm I just, you know, I'm got to the point where I, I can't do that until I can maybe get back uh, more of that em- energy and then, then re-engage. So I think that's another important component to community that people are missing when they want to talk about just being all by themselves. We do talk with each other, heads of communion, and also with, you know, I, I talk with the Islamic Society of North America, we're close partners with them, and also the Union Reform Judaism and I know that all of us have different experiences, and I don't want to generalize that, but there's a lot of stuff that we're going through this at the same time. Yeah. You know, how are you, how are you holding up? How's it going in, in your shop or whatever? And, and sometimes I'll tell you, I think you mentioned this earlier on, and we've tried to do provide resources and also times just to engage in lament and grief. We have lost so much including, I think, care for neighbor. But I mean, this pandemic with the virus, that's one pandemic. 
But the political season we went through in 2020, and it continues on now, the insurrection at the Capitol building, once again, uh, white America has to reckon with racial inequity, and that that's never easy for us as white people. But then to be aware of how any pandemic is just heaped on top of other things that people, the margins have to deal with. So just letting ourselves grieve and also some time for confession. And, you know, good old Martin Luther in his explanation of the third article of the creed, you know, I believe that I cannot by my own um, effort or understanding believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. So it's just notion we can't fix this by ourselves. But we do believe, not that we're just, you know, so whatever's going to happen is going to happen, but we do believe and trust that the world has been redeemed and is reconciled to God, all of creation. We haven't seen it all yet. We haven't realized all yet, but that's the final say. And so that doesn't mean we don't work hard and we don't expend time, energy, treasure. But on the other hand, God has already saved the world. We don't have to do that. But we need to participate in the work that God's doing. In what you're saying, you know, to your earlier point, it seems so antithetical that we would think of ourselves as anything other in this country other than kind of autonomous, self-directed, enclosed. But if I can surrender that and let go of it to what you just said, I don't have to be strong all the time in this glacial movement of a pandemic age, right? Like I can, if I care for my neighbor, I can also trust my neighbor to help me along in those times where I'm not doing as well as I was, say, a month before. Mm -hmm. And that's real too, isn't it? Because we have, you know, as you know, I recently had was tested positive for COVID a month back. And we all have colleagues and friends who have, and there's nothing like going through that kind of weakness. You really require others in a daily way to help you. You know, you mentioned a number of things that at the center, we've been talking about this time as a pandemic age. Like there's a clustering of all of these things happening at once Mm -hmm. that's showing us something. And maybe it's also testing our core values in terms of empathy in the way, in the way you're describing. You also mentioned grief. Uh Uh-huh. There are a lot of people who haven't in this last year been able to attend funerals. They've had loved ones who have died and they haven't been in the hospital room with them. We've heard these stories. It's pretty tragic. What are your thoughts on how grief compounds and how do we address that as a country? What's in front of us for how we listen to what grief needs to tell us? I find it curious that for the past year and a half, we've all just been going along as if this was not a major pandemic. Mm -hmm. And there has to be room to reckon with that and to realize that. And you're right, you know, in my own family, there have been weddings postponed and very, very small funerals where people, and those that also, my cousin just died. I'm sorry. Oh, thank you. Her family had her cremated. It was very sudden, a pulmonary embolism, but that's going to be later on when we're hoping that more people get vaccinated when we can gather to say goodbye to her. So that's all there. And somehow we've just been going through this blithely not always blithely, as if something major isn't going on right here. And I think what's different about this, my mother's 95. So, you know, grew up in the Depression, went through the, you know, the World Wars. My dad served in uh, the Army Air Corps, Korea, Vietnam, all of that kind of stuff. And she said this was far, this has been far more difficult than anything she's gone through in her life before. Mm. And I think we need to pay attention to that, wallow in it. But we're fooling ourselves. And I would like to see, you know, what studies there are for the emotional and psychological effects 
of this pandemic? What have these been on us? And also, I think it's our job in faith communities to pay attention to the spiritual effects of this. You know, Joseph said to his brothers, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. I mean, there might might have been some spiritual deepening, but also this has been really hard and that we don't pay attention to that. And then if we're going to be uh, sort of autonomous, then are we grieving alone? I don't think that that's healthy at all, nor is it supportable. I can't do that by myself. But also to tell people, you know, yes, this is a real thing. Yeah. And grief is a, a natural feeling and experience. You know, I'm just struck by, you mentioned your, your mom. She's 95 years old. She was born in 1926. Mm-hmm. So she's seen, she's lived through the mm-hmm. Great Depression, World War II, Korea, Vietnam. All the stuff in the 60s. All of that. Mm-hmm. And she, without hesitation, has said, this is the hardest, this is the hardest experience we've had. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To that point, alongside what you just mentioned with grief, grief requires community. We need rituals around grief, don't we? Mm-hmm. We need we need a way of acknowledging it and recognizing it. We do some of that virtually, some of it in person. But it seems to me, I'd like to get your thoughts on this, that grief doesn't go away. It can become corrosive, but it sticks around. It has to find an outlet to be expressed. And you know, I wonder if what your thoughts are on that first. And the second is really... In what ways might that outlet also be unhealthy in society? Like we're seeing, for instance, the highest level of hate crimes in the United States in the last 12 years. Does grief, unacknowledged, uh, in some ways become corrosive to society? Do we get afraid? And does our fear make us turn toward others? I don't know. Just thinking out loud. But let's go back first about grief and ritual. What is there anything else you'd like to say about that and the importance of it? In our tradition, we do have liturgies for lament and grieving, and we have scripture to support that. And we've done that in our congregations and then also virtually or online, however we're saying it now. We've provided moments or times for the whole church, for whoever wants to participate during this pandemic. I know the National Council of Churches, we had on Memorial Day, we had an ecumenical service online. But when we said, no, this is a time for grieving which I think it is important. But in a lot of ways, I think we've just been holding our breath thinking, well, you know, it's going to be better tomorrow. And But now I think we realize this is going to be a while. So yeah, some of us are grieving the freedom we used to have. And we could just go to the store and not worry about getting sick or not have to be masked or not all that sort of stuff. Um, so, you know, that's part of it. Can it be corrosive? I don't know. I don't know. That's an interesting question. I don't know if grief itself is corrosive. I know it can make you pretty tired. Yeah. I know. And if, if, if one doesn't find, find an outlet for the grief or at least what feeling it's sort of going on, I don't think that that's what's driving hate crimes in this country. What do you think is going on there? I mean, we see kind of moving through these themes. I appreciate being able to do this with you. But, you know, you mentioned earlier in terms of the impact of what we might call a pandemic age, on those who are minoritized in our communities. And we do know that, for instance, attacks targeting African-Americans in this country rose precipitously this year, and also Asian-Americans. And this is, in fact, one federal agency that documents this notes at least 8,000 different kinds of hate crimes this, this year, kind of tumultuous 12 months. There's more to say about this. What's happening in that? Well, I think I think fear definitely drives us. But this was going on before the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I think some people want to point to the last administration. But I think that this has always been there under the surface. 
maybe, I don't know, breeding somehow. Um, and the last administration just gave legitimacy to these feelings and to these actions. During the Depression, uh, we can see it. And in, in the rise of Nazi Germany, they had they scapegoated the Jews because they weren't doing so well. And, and that's, we, we always see that, that someone has to be the scapegoat, and it's usually not the people who are in power. I think the census showed that this latest one, that, that white people are barely the majority anymore and soon won't be. And I think folks might feel a little displaced by that. And people tend to hang on more tightly when they feel things are slipping away. But yeah, I, I don't know that grief causes it. I think maybe anger and fear, certainly that. And so, you know, being angry that you don't have the same position in the world as you imagined this, I don't understand the sense of being a victim as a white middle-class person. And I saw this also in, in our own church when people would ask me to speak out because Christians are under attack. And they meant Christians in this country. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, we're not. Maybe particular expressions of Christianity are not universally accepted. So, for example, we say when God says all are welcome, we mean all. And then people who don't want to make room for the gifts and blessings of LGBTQIA plus people, they say that my religious beliefs are under attack. And, you know, it's really egregious. You look at the My Pillow guy and mm-hmm. some of these other folks. Well, that's some of the rationale behind, behind much of this, isn't it? This sense that whether I'm looking at evidentially based science with regard to a vaccine or whether I'm looking at, uh, you know, what are the moral rationale for why or how I would treat my neighbor. We've reached this strange moment where the voice of authority really is the voice of my own opinion. And perhaps really distinct from what your father said, uh, now uh, everything that ends with my the end of my own nose should be impacting the entire world so that my beliefs are somehow seen as equal to all the other kind of evidentially based truism or truths that are out there. That's hard to function in a democracy, isn't it? Where I believe that everything that I have in my own sense, what I believe is right or wrong, should in every case be applied, even contrary to what science is saying. In all the topics we've discussed, whether we're talking about a pandemic or the role of grief in a pandemic or how we respond to the kind of atrocities around us, going back to your first words on grace, we don't do this alone. And there's a misconception when we believe we walk through the world alone. And that alone can also be a source of anger and a fear of others that just grows, even perhaps over a lifetime. When I'm out of community, there's every opportunity for me to misunderstand others because now I'm not engaging them in any way. Mm -hmm. Is grace then, in this final assessment, always reminding us in some way, you've got to get back I think of that song, you get to get ourselves back to the garden and you've got to get back into community in order to be able to sustain a healthy life. You can't do this alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, you sound like a good Lutheran. <laughs> it's probably because so I am. Most of our people, you know, Lutherans talk about grace, but we're the least likely to accept it from somebody else, which is kind of funny. <laughs> and, you know, in this American U.S. context, even though it's not true in any sense, in any way at all, that we are completely autonomous. It's just, it's not true, but somehow depending on others, that seems like a weakness in some cases, though we do it every day. You know, say hey to your neighbors and, you know, watch how the neighbor kid doesn't run in the street and you get away or whatever. And I think that's a particularly difficult or a significant issue in the United States. We live on this nice island of ours, which has been now breached a couple of times, where we really don't think that what we do has an effect on any other place in the world. 
Nevertheless, uh, I remember we had a delegation from the Malaysian Lutheran Church, and this was during the the campaign in 2016. And they said, when your candidate, and that happened to be then the former president, speaks ill of Muslims, we get beat up or our churches get burned. Mm -hmm. So this privilege that we have, particularly, I think, white privilege that we have, that we don't automatically think of the other or see that we're connected to the other, that I think is deadly. And you mentioned Amazing Grace. The fellow who wrote that had been a slave, was a captain of a ship that did the, the slave trade. And then he, English, you're right. And then England abolished slavery before the United States did. But then once that had happened and he realized what he had done, he was so filled with horror that he was almost paralyzed. And that's when the notion of Amazing Grace, that even the horror that he had perpetrated on other human beings, that even that God's grace was even sufficient enough to forgive that and give him as a chance, as he says, of being lost and now found. That's really important. So the sweet sound of that grace from the hymn, from what you were saying, is also, I would imagine, we can be angry, we can have fear, we can feel dispossessed, we can be marginalized, whoever we may be, for different reasons. There's always a way back to grace. There's always a way back to community. But we have to choose that, don't we? Well, grace is there all the time. God doesn't say, I'm turning the faucet on and off. But how are we able to open ourselves to that grace? And some of that means acknowledging that we are not autonomous, that we are dependent. I mean, Luther really, he really was onto something when he really pointed out, it, we can't do this by ourselves. And nor do we have to. And my spiritual director, she likes to say things like, when you do an invocation, you're not invoking the spirit. It's more like you're opening yourself, ourselves up to the spirit or to that grace that's already present. And I think that that's easier to do in community than it is just trying to tough it out by yourself. Though I think there are people who are able to do that and live grace-filled lives because they are open to the, the reality of grace that's all around us. They live under occupation there. And he said he's not optimistic, but he is hopeful. And I think there's a difference. We don't know how this will turn out. We're not completely clueless. We don't know how this will turn out. But we have hope that God will bring justice and goodness and love out of this situation, or that we might be open to that love that God has for us. We might be open to see that it's all around us anyways. But in the short term, you know, it's a mess. (laughs) It's really hard. So I, I think that's one thing. It's, it's also, I would say, the difference between happiness and joy. And so, oh, what was her name? Shoot, I'm not going to remember her name, the author. And she wrote a book, Smile or Die. And <laughs> she also wrote Nickled and Dimed. And that was oh, about Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It'll come remember. to me. Yeah. Well, you know, she was just told for this cancer, you just had to be positive. Well, she wasn't positive. She was angry. Yeah. And I think happiness is really overrated. And maybe that's what people are missing. But joy is something that's far deeper. Yeah, that's what makes me. I really wonder if on the other side of grief, because we know we know what grief feels like in our bodies, right? We feel it mm-hmm. in our relationships. We know what it can do to a day or a week. It has a kind of protracted. It's like grief has its own time inside of it that takes mm-hmm. hold of us. And I wonder if the anecdote or antidote to some of that is um, the eventual recovery really is a recovery of beauty and joy. It's not about happiness. It's not about the kind of Barney, the purple dinosaur. I'm okay. You're okay. We just love each other. It's, there's something you're saying about joy that it seems to me is rooted, 
can even be rooted through grief. You can return to a place of joy. You can reacclimate to beauty in your life through and after grief. Like joy won't be put down. It doesn't have to be put down. It's not the same as a kind of euphoric, everything's fine all the time. But joy is also, I think the way you're describing it, I don't know if I experience joy in its fullest when I'm alone. I think joy is felt in community too. Joy is felt with others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know after my, my dad died, my mother, she just would find a reason not to be home at supper time. And she, for a long time, she couldn't even sit at the, at the uh, kitchen table where she and my dad would have supper together. It was too, too hard. But she could also find moments of, even in her grief, joy, memories of my dad, but then watching our kids grow. And so, yeah. And yeah. I think community helps. Then, then there might be some people who are, you know, are natural mystics and, and hermits who are able to do this by themselves. But I'd love to meet them. Yeah. Well, I think they're in communion of course, with God and God, God's self is a community, if you think about the Trinity, but maybe they're also in communion of saints. I don't, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Religica Theolab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. To learn more about the center's work and for resources to be used in local communities, visit us at seattleu.edu slash the center.